you recently had one of your blog posts on IndieWire and someone commented back and said, hey, you know, congratulations, Diane, but don't you want to just be the writer-director? Why come in as a producer? Don't you want just the creative aspect and not more? And you had a wonderful, intelligent response to that. Well, I've just had a massive paradigm shift for myself over the last couple of years. When we did Obsolidia, I did not take a producer's credit on the movie because I was really off the thought. I, you know, I remember talking to you about it. I said, I don't want to be a producer. Like, I want to write and I want to direct and I do not want to produce movies. Um, but what I've realized uh, now in my second film, I'm not a producer on it at all. And it really has been a situation where I am like, I am just a writer director. And I really realized actually it's a privilege and an honor to be a producer on a movie. And I don't think I'll ever make a movie again without being a producer. Like on one hand, I think you have to take responsibility for your work. And I think like right now, and certainly Obsolidia would never have got made had I just taken the view of like somebody else is gonna do it all, you know? When you have a creative idea and you want to make something happen, you have to make it happen, <laughs> you know? And that's what producers do. And I think, you know, especially for your first film, the idea that someone's going to come along and do it all for you is um, an insane dream, you know? So I think, like, it, certainly for your first film, you're going to have to, like, roll up your sleeves and make it happen. Uh, and then thereafter, I feel like, actually, I've realized it's just an honor. It's like, I mean, having a, making a film is really like having a child in a certain way. And you want to be the best parent you can and really like help that child flourish and do well and get out in the world and meet the people that it should meet. And I honestly think like as the creator of it, you're like the person like most savvy or most knowledgeable really of what that is. You know, I look at someone like Shane Karath who did um, Upstream Color a couple of years ago. And I think his model is terrific of how he distributed his movie and produced it and sort of did everything because in his marketing, I mean, he understood his film in a way that no distributor really would have and certainly probably even other producer, you know, like a producer and his vision for the film then, you know, permeated everything in the way that it was released into the world. And I just think like, actually for me now, I find that more exciting as a challenge, right? Rather than being like, no, I'm just the writer and director and you guys can figure out the marketing and you can figure out this and you can figure out that. I feel like actually, no, I want to be a part of all those discussions. And it's not to say that I'll do everything by myself. You know, like I work with a producer, Chris, yeah. and I, you know, I work with other producers, absolutely. But I definitely want to be on the producer's table as well for every film that I do from now on. And I think it's, I think it's really an honor and a privilege to be there, you know? Um, uh, we were lucky with Obsolidia though, because we got, we met Matt Medlin, who was the producer I did a lot of physical stuff producing wise and, and kind of logistical stuff, but he really did the nuts and bolts of the organizational skills yeah. of getting it from A to B to C. And the contracts and dealing with the unions and, and he all did, that That was Matt, Matt Medlin, he did, he did that. And we met him at a very interesting time in his career where he was shifting from low, really micro budget independent films to an upper echelon of independent films. And he's gone on to make, you know, you know, million dollar movies now since then. But um, we will go back to that model of working with somebody at that level. Again, uh, hopefully Matt, but um, if not him, somebody else like him, like-minded, because the power now is in the hands of the filmmakers to actually try and monetize their work at an independent level, social media wise, and the audience that they can build in that platform and use that in order to be able to 
monetize their ideas and their work so that they can continue to work as an artist further down the line and you know maybe somewhere along the way if they get hit up by a studio to do something then you know they have that option as well but at the same time they're able to continue to monetize their work so that they can make a living at the work that they're doing and be able to you know be creative so that that's one of the things that we're looking at now again going back from what Diana's just experienced to the older model and then using the platforms that are available today to be able to you know um, put that product out there. Obsolidia was your first feature film let's talk about Sundance a blind submission did you know anyone there what happened? Okay. Sundance was a submission on the last day of submissions and it was walked in not posted or FedExed. I walked it in by myself. I didn't trust anybody else to do it. That day, Diane and I had been given two tickets to go and see the Dalai Lama talk. <laughs> and it was the last day and of submissions. And I said to Diane, you go and see the Dalai Lama. I'm going to go and deliver <laughs> yeah. the film over to Sundance. Diane went and saw the Dalai Lama. <laughs> I went and delivered the film at Sundance. And when I got there, the Performa is, is that it's in a manila envelope with a particular code number written on top that you deliver to the counter. And then that person at the counter of the office in Sundance's office in Beverly Hills, they take that envelope and put it in the pile. And <laughs> I watched where it went in the pile and I looked at the pile and I was aghast at the amount of envelopes that were standing upright all the way down this corridor. And I thought to myself, well, there goes nothing because there were so many envelopes. I just didn't think we had a chance. So yeah, we did not know anyone. We knew nobody there. We just gave in a blind submission. Then when the programmers got to it, it was in a slush pile and the guy had watched four movies previously and this was his fifth movie to watch. And that was him. exactly how it was selected for competition at Sundance. He watched four movies and then he got to ours, which you've seen our movie, it's pretty slow. I mean, there's less cuts <laughs> in our movie than there is in a 60 second car commercial. You know, so he watched our movie after watching four of the movies and then he decided that it was going to go into another pile, which was further up the food chain. And that was how we got into competition at Sundance. And we, I, so we knew absolutely nobody. And we really, I mean, we didn't have high expectations. We just felt like it was worth submitting, you know, as you do. And it was the first thing we'd submitted it to. The film was not finished. We had done, uh, we had not completed sound on it at that point. No. It was not color corrected. Um, and so, you know, so we still had those things to do. And then I was out in Wyoming and, you know, this was like a couple months later and I was working with a director on a script there. And I was, it was funny. It's just that f funny thing with timing. Like I had just had this one night where I really like for the first time, I actually really doubted how we had made the film and what the film was. And the whole time making it and 
um, you know, in post and everything. I just, all the time, I just, I loved it and I loved the process and I was just like, this is, this is great and whatever happens, it doesn't matter. This has been amazing and I've learned so much and I've grown so much and what happens beyond this is, it's all fine. And this one particular night, you know, I just had this night where I was like, and I'm out in Wyoming, I'm in the middle of nowhere and I haven't seen anyone and I'm sure that fed into it, where I was just like, Diane, you've screwed up, you know, like, you know, like the movie, you should have thought, you should have been more clever, you know, you should have got the name cast and you should have done this and you should have done that. You'll never get to do it again. You'll never make another movie. And the very next day I got up and there was uh, an email from Sundance saying, you know, is this the number that we can contact you at? And I, I remember I called you and then I called yeah. Matt and I was like, they're probably just calling, to, they probably just want to call to say like, you know, thanks, well done, <laughs> try again next time. Do you know? Like I really was like, you know, it can't, they can't be actually, you know? And then I got that call and it was, I, I described it recently in my blog. I mean, I literally, when it was um, Shari Freelo who called me one of the programmers and I mean, when she said, you know, your film has been selected, I was literally sort of on the floor crying. And I think because I just had this really dark night, you know, this, you, I think I'd just been in that moment of going, you know, you did screw it up, right? And it's, it's, it's never going to be seen anywhere. And, and, then, and then that call came. So with Rebel Heart Films and your, your classes that you're teaching, that you're going on the road, I think you're going to Seattle first, is that right? Seattle first, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. What do you plan to tell other filmmakers about that same type of moment where, hey, it's the last day and I've got tickets to go see the Dalai Lama. Do I, do I take the chance and submit? And how do, my, how do I know my film is actually ready? You know, not, I mean, you said it wasn't color corrected and the sound wasn't totally Yeah, done. absolutely. Okay. The sound was And I think, like, to be honest, uh, festivals like Sundance, I think they're really used to seeing films in that sort of condition, you know? So I think, like, if it's, you know, if the cut is finished, like, you've edited, you know, you've edited and you've locked picture and you've just got, like, some things, like, some technical sound color to do, like, I think they'll be able to tell from that if it's a film that's for them that year, you know? Sure. Um, I and, also <clears> believe in another angle of this, question the the bigger the festival i believe the more seasoned and informed the programmers and i think they're able to discern between something that's really truly unique and has a voice or a quality that speaks and they can see that in first viewing in something that's not color corrected, that's not got sound properly done, that doesn't have music and all of the accoutrements that go with a finished film. I think really high-end, bigger festivals, that's not to disparage smaller festivals because we've been to some great small festivals around the world, not just mm -hmm. in America, but around the world. Um, the bigger festivals have a more it seems like a more seasoned, more informed programmers who do this for a living. This is their profession. And as a profession, they're able to, they're able to weed out, you know, the good from the bad. It's also I think that they're looking for something like authentic, something that's unique, something that's true and something that certainly the programmers at Sundance said to me, you know, they said, like when we watched Obsolidia, they said, you just see it as pure love, you know? And, you know, I was so moved when one of them said that to me, because I thought that is how we made the film, right? It was, there was never a cynical decision. Like, it was always that thing where it was sort of like, here's the smart thing to do, right? Here's what conventional wisdom would have you do. 
And we always went, but it's not right for us, so we're going to do it like this. You know, so we're going to cast our best friend in the lead role. We're not going to, um, you know, go with the more named actress. We know, we're just, and we just did everything in that sort of way. And I think that that is ultimately what gave it the chance to stand out. You know, I think those programmers see thousands of movies and they see thousands of movies that are trying to get into Sundance, you know? And I think our film wasn't trying to get in Sundance. Our film was just trying to be its own weird, unique thing, right? Which some people are gonna love and some people are gonna hate, you know, because it's just what it is. But it's certainly none of the decisions we made in that movie were sort of geared towards how do we impress the programmers at Sundance or how do we get a movie into there? And I think one of the problems for a lot of films and something, you know, to me that really is a message that we want to impart to people through Rebel Heart is just that thing about be true to yourself, like make the film that you will love, you know, and trust in that. Don't try and second guess what you think the programmers at Sundance are like, you know, going to like. And don't and therefore go, oh, well, we'll get this person because she was in another movie at Sundance two years ago. And oh, we'll get this music because, you know, they're, they're really popular and people will think that. You know, don't do any of that. Like really just, you know, it's like, it's like filtering out the noise in yourself to just find your own heart and your own true story. And I really feel like when you do that and if you do that with an authentic intent, that is how you're gonna make a film that's gonna stand out. And that's how you're gonna make a film that will get into Sundance, for instance. You know, but the more that you're thinking in a cynical way or, a man, you know, sort of a manipulative way, I just think, that's a, they see a thousand, they see, you know, 5,000 movies and most of them are doing that. I understand that the two of you have a yoga practice that you, you know, do every day or that you were a former yoga teacher. I taught yoga for many years, yes. Okay. What principles from the practice, from that mindset, do you apply to the entertainment business, to your films, to your screenwriting, to producing, to acting? Yeah, well, I mean, Obviously, the, the practice of Ashtanga Yoga is really a physical, it's a very physical practice, and it gets you exerted to the point where it requires you to quieten your mind because it is such a physical re uh, a practice. And then when you finally finish it, you get into a place of self-reflection, contemplation, and quiet in your mind. So you basically, you basically tap into uh, another area of your mind that you don't normally access in your daily life and within working within the the film industry you know that's something that's not required of you to do because there could be you know a lot of cynicism around it as a, you know it's not really an art form or it's you know it's so superfluous that you know people don't really care or it's something that's in the theater this week and gone next week and you know there'll be another dozen of them out you know the year after or whatever but it does allow you to be able to view and see things differently in as in a in as much as you're you have a, a purer intention for what you're trying to do i mean diane's thing was always when we started obsolidia was look hey whoever gets on board with this um we it may never go anywhere but we'll make a bunch of new friends and we'll get better at what we do that was exactly mm -hmm. the intention from the very get-go and that comes out of the whole idea of just being open in a yoga practice and i think it's also that thing of non-attachment to outcome because i think that's one of the biggest things Lessons. in yoga practices yeah. you know uh it's 
being focused, just being in the moment and being present to what's happening without, you know, without having a goal, without um, yeah, doing it for something. It's like we say, you wash the dishes to wash the dishes. You don't wash them to get clean dishes, you know? And I think um, uh, in filmmaking, I really feel something definitely I know that guides me is just that thing. You don't control the outcome of, uh, you know, making a film. You know, what you do control is how you are in each moment as you make it. And I sort of think like as you're going through the process, if you just work in a way that's, you know, open hearted and that's inclusive and that's positive, then no matter what happens, you've you have a great experience and things are good, you know, and you really don't control what happens to your film afterwards. So like I, I, I mean, I feel like I'm definitely guided by that. I mean, there's so many there's to be honest, because yoga is like such I mean, uh, such an underpinning of my life. So I feel like it underpins everything, like also in the content and the kinds of films, like I feel there's a sort of responsibility in the material that you create as well. You know, the, the films that you make, anything that you put out in the world has an effect on other people. And I think it's really important to be conscious about that. You know, what, what energy are you putting out through your work, you know? So there's many, there's so, there's so many different aspects. I think the number one thing though, really is that, um, that thing about the, the outcome, you know, not to be attached and yoga teaches you that in a very profound way, you know, that really just be in the moment, be focused on the process and let go of expectations and, uh, and, and what's going to happen with it at the end, because that you never control. And I think if you do just stay in that, you just have a better chance of making a better film. So that day when you went to the Sundance office, mm -hmm. it, it seems like you almost, it was like, okay, let's just give it a shot. But was there both inside of you this part where, you know, it's not going to happen and we're just feeling, we're going, we're doing, I, I'm just, I'm curious because it's not cheap to, you know, I mean, it's a great I, festival, but it's. Yeah, I went in there and I, f I felt really confident because I'm pretty much a confident person <laughs> anyway, but I felt really confident in the experience that we'd had and what we'd achieved with what we'd done with Obsolidia, that I was really confident that if this hallowed ground is not the place for this, there is another hallowed ground for this project and it's somewhere else. But I felt confident in as much as there, there's only been two experiences that I've had in a 20 year span of being in the film industry where I really felt like this is really an amazing experience. The other experiences that I've had in the film industry were just work related, right? They were just jobs, a means to an end. And some of them were good and well-intentioned, but they fell way short of the experience that I had with Obsolidia. And the other experience that I had was working on Titanic, where it, there are two extremities. One is a micro, micro budget film, and the other one was one of the most expensive films of its time. And on both of those experiences, the, the leader at the helm, i.e. Diane or James Cameron, mm -hmm. both had the same passion and the same enthusiasm for what they were doing. And that filtered down to the, the likes of me, you know, that filtered all the way down. And that passion is so palpable that every day, no matter how tired you are, when you show up at that set, that heightened imagination creation that you're making, you just are in, 
you're just infused with it. You have to be a part of it. You can't. It's undeniable. And those were the two experiences where I went, this is really amazing. So I knew handing off Obsolidia that it was coming from that place. And I was confident that if this wasn't the hallowed ground that it would be accepted at, there was another hallowed ground that it would be accepted and that it would find its audience eventually. And I still think that the potential for its audience hasn't even been reached yet. I think it as a film and as a story and as a, as a philosophy will probably be more received or more better received further down the line as things do come to a change and as things do um, progress in the way that the philosophical ideas in the film actually come to bear. And that's where I feel, you know, the two experiences, micro budget and multi, multi-million dollar budget, but yet the same infusion of passion, you know, I mean, Diane Bell and James Cameron <laughs> in the same sentence, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing, you know, but I experienced There was that. one thing I will say, um, uh, just picking up on that, like there was definitely like when we were making the film, it just was, it was a great experience and it was just that feeling of everyone coming together Community, and just yeah. something really, uh, really great happening. That is, that is true. I didn't, I still didn't think that we would get in Sundance or didn't have that as a sort of, I mean, I'd always hope for it because I always, you know, admired Sundance and thought that would be amazing, but I did not expect it. But I had no doubts about it. I had no doubts about the film at all, ever. Like when it got Independent Spirit Awards, I went, yeah, that makes sense. You know, yeah, sure. Makes sense. It's, it's done with pure passion and love and, you know, it's creative and it's artistic and yeah, makes sense. Didn't, didn't question it in the slightest, you know. And that wasn't arrogance. That was just like, well, I feel really confident in this loaf of bread I just baked. You know, it's really good. It tastes great. Try some, you know, that was it. When a filmmaker gets into a festival, what should they know about hiring a publicist? How much should they expect to pay? Do they need a publicist? I think it all depends, really. I mean, if you're going to Sundance or South by Southwest or Tribeca, like one of the sort of big ones, I would suggest you do need a publicist to, to make the most out of this opportunity you have. Because basically, to have your film uh, premiere at one of those top tier festivals, you're going to get exposed to a huge amount of people. And it's really a great chance to publicize your film and, and give it a good launch. And as I wrote recently in my blog, like I feel now very clear, if you're making a movie like Obsolidia that is that doesn't have stars, that is a little quirky, a little odd, your absolute best bet is to self-distribute it. There's absolutely no reason to sort of go looking for a distributor because you're probably not going to find one. And if you do, you're not going to make any money out of it. And worse than that, your movie is not going to get seen. Like, I, I really feel that, you know, because uh, they're not going to put the work that needs to be done to get an audience for that film. So, I, I mean, I absolutely do feel if you're going to one of the top tier festivals, one, I would be planning a self-distribution and two, I think, in absolutely essential to that is having a PR person. Um, what you pay for them, gosh, that's like saying, what do you pay for, you know, how long is a piece of rope or something? Um, 
it, you know, you're, you're, you're going to figure it out. You're going to talk to a bunch of different people and, and see and, and figure it out. I don't think it's possible to sit, sort of say, I mean, it, it, Sundance is going to be a lot more expensive probably than if you're dealing with somebody at the LA Film Festival, you know, because if they're in LA, they're here already and they don't have to travel to Sundance. If someone's going to go to Sundance to publicize your movie, there's costs, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think you're going to pay someone less than $5,000 to be your PR person at Sundance. Um, I, you know, I think that would be the minimum that you're looking at. So it's a lot of money and you want to make sure though that it's for a good purpose. Um, if you're going to, I think if you're premiering at one of, you know, like a, a smaller festival, a regional festival or something, do you need a PR person? I would still, I mean, I would still say if you can get someone involved, it's probably not, a, it's not a bad idea because again, it's just your chance to really reach, uh, reach Wider your audience off, to launch yeah. your movie, you know? Uh, and to connect yourself with an audience. Now, of course, ideally, I think in this, like right now, um, you'll have started doing that earlier, i.e. creating an audience for your movie. You don't wait until you're going to the festival to try and get an audience for your movie. You'll ideally have started that when social you started media. making the movie, yeah. you know, and through social media. And I think there is so much that you can do on your own. And it's absolutely conceivable that you never deal with a PR person if you've done that effectively. You know, it had made perhaps one person in your team, like everyone's talking the big buzzword, a producer of marketing and distribution. So if you have a PMD on your team, which I think is advisable, you know, then you probably don't need a public, you know, you might not need a publicist. I think there's certain, we've talked about recently, I think there's certain things though that they can still do, yeah. which you cannot. Conventionally, publicists. You know, conventionally. Reaching out to local radio stations, newspapers, newspapers. etc. You know, that they already have connections to that they can like access quickly. Also, as well, they, it, it validates well. you as a filmmaker, as a producer, as a director, as a you know, it validates you also as well to have a go-to person who is quote unquote the publicist, and they make those calls for you. And when they call, they're already validating you to said radio station B or said local TV station C or any of those those outlets. And so they've validated you before you've even gotten there. And so when you get there. Now the people who are going to interview you, they know, hey, this person's already validated because their publicist made the call. And so by the mere fact that you've got a publicist, then you must be somebody, right? And therefore what you're hawking, what you're selling has value. And so therefore they, you know, the one feeds the other and, you know, you, you negotiate those prices as and how you you know, get into conversations with your, with the potential publicist. But they look, all publicists look at, you know, people and films and ideas on a case-by-case case case basis. You know, like with us, we were lucky. We found a woman called Kim Dixon, who's a great publicist. She's a, a fabulous human being to start with. And then, therefore, she's very authentic and... Um, she does the best she can with what she's got and that's all you can ask for and we were very fortunate and we've you know continued to have a great relationship with her yeah. no? tips on interviewing a publicist like what are some things to look for besides the obvious do you have a gut feeling about the person that you would get along and that you can trust them other than that I think it really like I think it, again it depends like where you're going with them and what you want from them and I think you should be very clear about what it is that you want 
you know, what is your goal, you know? So, I mean, if I was going to Sundance with a movie now, my goal would be to sell tickets online, <laughs> okay? I'm just gonna be like really clear. I would be like, here's what I want, you know? And so I would be talking to the publicist about that. How are we gonna reach audience, like actual possible audience members to sell tickets to them to our movie online? You know, that would be my thing. And I think like, you know, just to, like the thing to talk to if you're interviewing publicists, you know, is be clear about what is your goal and what can they do to help you achieve that, you know? rather than just being sort of like, oh, well, we're just gonna, you know, we just want our movie to be well known or something, you know? Um, so, you know, like find out who their contacts are, you know, and really what they can, who they'll be able to help you get an article with. And are those people gonna be actually helpful to you? You know, like, is that, is that the audience that you wanna be reached? You know, so just, I would really be clear about what your goal is and just really ask them how they're gonna help you achieve that, you know? and. And then you have to, then at a certain point, you have to trust your instincts as to whether they can really, you know, deliver on those things. And also as well, let them watch your project and see if they're really passionate yeah. about it. I think that, that is key. Because I, I know when we met Kim, the thing was that she, she loved was, Obsolidia. And it was so yeah. obvious that she absolutely loved it. So you knew that for yeah. this woman, like if she's calling anyone up, it's coming from the heart. You know, like when she's telling other people about your movie and, you know, trying to get them to watch it and trying to get them to... Yeah. Do an interview. You know that she's like genuinely so excited about it. So excited. It. And I think I think that's like absolutely everybody that you work with. That's who you want. You know, you want that person who's like who loves your movie. You know, who loves this idea as much as you do, or sometimes more than you yeah. do. And that's what you need. You know, you need that because that passion will take you much further than than anything else. Two awards at Sundance, right, for Obsolidia mm -hmm. in 2010. Two Spirit Awards nominations, mm -hmm. right, Cassavetes. Um, you didn't release the film for two years. <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> okay, I mean, this really bleeds into, like, uh, you know, why I wrote a blog recently about self-distribution. Um, when we got into Sundance, we... We were like deer in the headlights. Yeah, I mean, we had not anticipated it. And then we, you know, we sort of, like, as I said in this blog recently, you know, we looked up on Google, what should we do? And, you know, there's no handbooks, you know, that you get when you get in Sundance telling you, here's, here's how to do this. You know, so we were like figuring it out and we sort of thought, okay, well, okay, our film has gone in Sundance, so maybe it's going to sell, you know, and like we're going to go to Sundance and we're going to sell our movie, you know, and we went to Sundance and we didn't sell our movie, you know, uh, there was, I think there, there, there was offers, but, but like, they were so minuscule. You're like, this is Again, a that thing where it's like, there's no money and there's going to be no uh, like advertising. So we just sort of, we ended up, the first year after Sundance, we just went onto the festival circuit, you know? And we and were, that took a year. We were invited to many festivals around the world and it was great. And we had, a, you know, a great time going to yeah. tons of festivals and having a lot of great experience and meeting lots of wonderful filmmakers. And Drinking lots of wine and... Yeah, you know, it was great. Lots of little hors d'oeuvres. Which ended really with the, the Independent Spirit Awards. Yeah. You know, that sort of like, that was kind of, okay, like we've spent a year now doing and this. That wasn't wine, that was Jamison's whiskey. <laughs> Which yes. was way and more dangerous. And there were those massive bottles. Have you um, ever tried to get through one of those bottles? Those things are we huge. Didn't, we didn't try either. Um, and, so, and so then we just, you know, at that point, and I was still in that old headspace. And I, you know, this has like been a massive shift for me this year, but I was still in this headspace of sort of like, I didn't want to be a producer. And I was kind of like, I'm done with this. Like, I just feel like I'm done with this movie. And with, it's, it's like awful to think about it, but I was just sort of like, you know, I, I feel like I've done everything I can and I got to move on to the next thing. You know, I got to move on and I'm writing something else. And I went to the 
uh, Sundance Screenwriters Lab with another project and stuff. And I was just like, I just want to focus on um, new things, making new things. And and so the movie just sort of languished. And it was very lucky then that, um, you know, Sundance to be honest, initiative. lucky that Sundance, you know, started this artist services and reached out to us, which was, you know, their idea for creating a platform for people to self-distribute their films, really, in essence. And they reached out to us and said, you know, did your film ever get, you know, any sort of regular distribution? Or do you want to no. be a part of this? And we we're like, yeah, yes. you know, and they said, you know, because we love your film to be one of the first films that we roll out with this. And we were like, this is perfect for us, you know. And so through that, through Artist Services, basically they negotiated a deal with a company called New Video, who then distributed our movie, you know, digitally and online. Um, I learned so much from this. And, I, you know, like we made so many mistakes and did so many things, you know, like in hindsight where I'm like, oh, no, no, no. And, you know, that's why I'm just like, you know, my next film that I plan to shoot this year that we're, mm -hmm. you know, we're developing right now. I mean, I'm just like from day one, like even right now, I'm planning the distribution of it. Yeah. And it's not, the aim is not to try to sell it to a distributor. Like that, for me, like the model for that, if you're making a movie like Obsolidia, No Stars, again, like an original kind of quirky film. And that was, you know, lots of distributors came to us and they're like, we like your film, we have no idea how to sell it. <laughs> you know, like, you know, that was it across the board. We, you know, it's a great film. We have no idea how to sell it. You know, and this is the part where I go like about that thing about being a producer and taking responsibility for your work. Now where my head is, and it, I just wasn't there then. Like for me, just making the movie was like the big thing. Now I'm like, no, now I want to like connect the work with an audience. You know, if you take the time to make a film, take the time to build the audience and to like find them and get that film out to those people. And the magic of these films, I think like, you know, obviously it's not a film for everyone. It's never going to be a mainstream movie. It's never going to be like a multiplex kind of movie. And the movie we're making this year is not that kind of movie. No. You know, we're not really interested in those kind of movies. Um, you know, so we want to make something else. Oh, and we are. If somebody came along with the, well, with the no. budget, yeah, But we'll I mean, do like, it. I don't, like, they're not the movies that I go see. They're not the movies that I seek out to watch personally. You know, so, like, making this next one, I just go, like, again, I just want to, like, create this very niche thing, but take responsibility for it, plan the distribution and launch it myself, you know? Biggest mistake a filmmaker can make distributing their movie? To me, I think one of the big mistakes that I see happening a lot is uh, the people premiere the movie at a festival, possibly one of the big festivals, Sundance or South by Southwest or somewhere, and they go there hoping to get a sale, and then it doesn't happen. And they end up, just like us with Obsolidia, a year later, thinking, okay, we're gonna self-distribute this, you know? And they've really squandered that year, and especially their first launch, which is the moment at which they had the most attention and actually is the time to distribute your movie, you know? And I see this again and again, and I see, you know, people having that moment and they, you know, they don't take it. And I think the biggest, like, I really feel passionately that the biggest mistake is to think that someone's gonna come along and take your movie and do you know, it all for and you. And do it and do it all for you and make it, you know, and, and it's gonna be amazing. And I just think like real reality of the world right now, the film world, is there's so much content, you know, there's so many movies out there. Yeah. The distributors are, are flooded with stuff, you know. And unless your movie has like got something like really, really extraordinary about it, it's really not gonna it's not gonna get picked up for a great distribution deal. And this is another thing I think in our industry is there's a lot of um, 
lies. I'm just going to say it. Misconception about distribution. distribution, Because I feel like the way it's all reported, obviously, in the press is to make everything sound great. Like this film got this deal. What they don't tell you is there's often a service deal. You know, the, the artist or the filmmaker is paying the company to distribute the movie. It's not being picked up, you know, like, i.e. the filmmakers haven't been paid any money. You know, and that's another thing. Even movies that are picked up for distribution often, I mean, I, like I hear again service and again from filmmakers, they get zero. They get zero money up front. Zero. Okay, and the company is taking all rights of the film uh, in order to distribute it. But then they don't do anything that you couldn't really have done yourself. I mean, they're not, they're not putting money into advertising it or marketing it. You know, they're giving you zero money to take away the rights because I guess they say that they can get you better placement on iTunes or something. And, you know, you know really, like, uh, I think just one of the things is, like, if you're making a, one of these small movies, you know, like a small movie like this, plan your own distribution, take control of it, study this, learn it, you can do it and you can make money at it. And the biggest mistake is to think that somebody else can do it better. If you've done, if you've done your homework to do your film, do your homework to distribute your film. It's the same thing. I mean, it's, it's just a different skill set, but it's the same thing in, in essence. And the other thing about it is, is that you will then monetize your work so that you can continue to be a, a writer, director, and get better at what you do. I mean, yeah. that's because this thing of like you know you know giving up the rights to your film and really you know like if you manage if you could make a film every year or every two years and you retain the rights to them and slowly like they're showing them Vimeo on demand or VHX and people are paying and you're getting ninety percent of the ticket every time that they pay to see your film you know slowly if you build up a few films you know you'll be making a living out of it if you've given the rights away to your movie and you've given them away for virtually nothing. Um, I, trust me, you're not going to see much money from them ever again. And the money you know? in, per, in perpetuity for films is on the digital platform. The digital platform in perpetuity is where the money is made on films. That's how it's made. Going back to 2010, what were some of the offers that you received while you were at Sundance? Some of the offers were just laughable, if not. And when we say laughable, what it means is you get offered zero money up front for your film. So like absolutely nothing. And the terms in which they're being offered to you are such that really, you know, you'll never see a penny from it, like a penny. And more than that, like you wouldn't even mind that if it was structured in such a way that you felt the company that was taking it was going to spend a lot of money in advertising and really connect it with an audience or no. promote it. You know, in which case, you know, then you weigh it up. You know, if you have a company that's saying, we're not going to give you any money and you're not really going to get any back end, you're not going to see any money from this, but we're going to put we, it we'll in spend, 1,500 you know, Yeah, we'll spend $5 million promoting it. Well, that, that is pretty decent, you know, because that will enhance you and enhance your standing as a filmmaker, you know, because the film's going to get out there. But if the, really all the distributors are going to do, and that's the kind of, I think the offers that we had, it was really like, you know, it's just really to add to, you know, certain yeah. companies' catalogs um, where they will own the rights to it in perpetuity, but they're not going to $5,000, $10,000. I mean, it was a joke. I mean, some of it was just yeah. ridiculous. How many offers did you get while you were there? I we, had, I we had two offers while we were there. And then we had another offer when we got away from there. Um, but they were so, like I said, you know, 5,000, 10,000, you know, really low ball offers. I mean, I mean, we did get one offer, which was a terrific one. We sold the rights to um, airline and shipping, airlines and shipping. Who even knew? Like, you know, oh. and so we sold the rights for that. For that, we got twenty five thousand dollars. 
Um, so that was like, you know, and that was like a decent amount for something that, you know, we wouldn't have any access to anyway, you yeah. know? Wow. Uh, so that was, that was a good uh, deal. But other than that, like actually the, the sort of selling the rights for America or something, uh, there was nothing that, that made sense. And then also on top of that, one of, the, one of the awards, the Alfred P. Sloan Award, which is the only cash prize award at Sundance, we won that. So that was a tax-free cash prize award no strings attached so that was like 20 grand and that along with the airline and shipping with the other deal i mean that brought us close to our physical budget you know that we made the movie for mm -hmm. so that was great um the other deals that we were being offered were almost insulting to a, to an artist uh, any artist to a filmmaker to an artist to a musician insulting f to think that that's what you as a company would pay this person for their hard-end work but it's for. not insulting it's just that i mean it's just the it's marketplace the right now you it's know and it's just the fact that there's so many things out there so they don't have a huge volume a filmmaker is going to sundance you say to plan their distribution ahead of time what would you have them doing six months beforehand a month beforehand well, six months beforehand doesn't exist because you don't actually learn you're in Sundance okay, until I guess like two and a half months before. Right. Like, so I think you learn about Thanksgiving. So you've got about two months. Yeah. And it is like a whole production, basically. The moment you get into Sundance, whether you're planning your distribution or not, you have got a whole production on your hands yeah. because, you know, there's so many things you have to do for Sundance. Like you have to deliver so many different things. In our case with Obsolidia, we hadn't finished the film. You know, so when we got in Sundance, it was sort of like, okay, we better finish the movie. So we better, you know, find some movies, some money to do color correction and some money to do the sound mix and so on. So we had all that. Um, so I would say, though, for other people, like if you're, or and, uh, if you're organized of... and planning it, and I think like um, if I was doing it again, like, you know, if I was submitting a movie to Sundance and thinking we had something of a shot of getting in and started to think about the distribution. And I think no matter if we were getting in Sundance, I would be planning this, whichever festival we were going to premiere at, um, you know, a, a couple months. I mean, you want to, as I said, start your campaign from when you start making your movie, really start connecting an audience, building an audience for it. I think it's absolutely fundamental Key. now. Yeah. Um, and I think then, obviously, immediately beforehand, I would work with, I would try to find a theater booker to work with. I would hire a publicist to work with, um, social campaign, a social media campaigner, you know. It would just be like getting a team of people together to work with. And it's not, you know, I think this, it's just like making a movie, you know. When you f make a film, you get all these different people involved who are really good at their jobs and you inspire them and help them to achieve it. And I think, you know, it would be the exact same with that model of, you know, distributing. You're not going to do everything. You need to find a team of people. You know, you need to make a budget for that and find a team of people who are going to work with you. So you have less than a month and a half. Once you get that call or that email, yeah. you basically have about a month and a half. Is that mm -hmm. right? To kind of get your stuff in order? Two, yeah, two yeah, months. Two okay. Months, yeah. And it's over the holidays. Yeah, it's over the So yeah, there's no chaos. No, no stress. So, yeah. so what would you advise? Again, so you'd start finding a publicist. You'd find a theater booker. The, the first thing I, I mean, would suggest is as soon as you find out, you then find a place and accommodation where you're going to stay. <laughs> okay. Because the spike, as the days progress and the weeks progress, the places of um, accommodation within the Park City area just 
they go up to an all-time high. So save money and book early. So save money, book early. It's just like buying an airline ticket. Save money, book <laughs> early, right? And get your place locked in. Make sure it's fully paid for. You've got a receipt for it. You've got the keys, the whole thing. Okay, to go back to distribution stuff. Now, and then from there, you want to make sure that you have your publicist in line so that you've got that online, you've, you've agreed yeah. what she's gonna do or he's gonna do for you. And then uh, at the same time, your social media wise, you're really savvy now. You've got your Twitter account, you've got your Facebook account, you've got your, your um, social platforms sorted out and you're really talking about what's happening day to day hour by hour on Twitter and building, and building that audience and given the anticipation that something is about to happen real and soon. And I think what I would plan would be to be releasing the film on a streaming service like VHX the, the day, day after premieres. it premiered at, right. at Sundance. So if you're like, you know, the very next day it's available online for the same length of the festival. I would, I would think I would, I would plan it like that first, you know, so it'd be like, for the length of the Sundance Festival, you can stream it, you know? For the same and price, the that same price of a ticket. Buying the at, ticket at, at the Sundance. festival. You know? Um, so and people, you're in Iowa and you want to see this movie the day that it premieres at Sundance. Yeah. After it premieres at Sundance, you want to see this movie. You're in Iowa, you hit but click. But probably just for a limited time, you know, like have the streaming available for the same amount of time as the festival, yeah. you know? And really build a campaign to, you know, build audience for the movie through that. But then after the festival's over, then what, what platform would you suggest or? Then I would think like to me, if it's gone successful and by then you'll have sort of like proof of concept in a way, right? You know, after the festival, first of all, you'll have reviews, you know, from because and if you're at Sundance, you're going to get reviews from Hollywood Reporter and Variety and all the big, you know, so you're going to have reviews. You're going to know how the movie is landing, how it's playing. You're going to see how people are responding to it. And so then you can really plan it from there. And I think you'll be, have a sense of who your audience is in a whole new way after that and then you use you know? that information and you give that to a theater yeah. booker and start find booking a theater booker and start planning a theater with that information as a blueprint you give that to the theater booker and let him look at that and go yeah. or her look at that and go this is what we got at sundance this is what we had now yeah where do you think our audiences and would also be? because also from that like if you've shown the movie um on VHX or Vimeo on demand, you also have like the geographics from that. You can see where people have been downloading your movie, for instance. So you can see, right. you know, you can see, oh my God, all these people in Washington DC wanted to see our film, great. So, okay, so give that information to a theater booker, you know? Let's go to Washington DC. Yeah. <laughs> and retention rates and all that. So, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I, th I mean, I think that's the way, obviously we haven't, we, you know, we're planning to do this with our next film. Yeah. You know, we didn't do this with Obsidia. As I said, we were in a like completely different head state. So it's gonna, you know, we're we're sort of like learning all this stuff and looking forward to putting it into practice, but we haven't done it yet. Sure. Well, it was a different landscape back in 2010. It was a different it's landscape. It's changed totally a lot. Different. But, so it sounds like if you get the call, if you're good to go, get your room, Absolutely. pay for it, get, get the receipt. Get your apartment, get your room. <laughs> in our case, we rented two houses. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Two houses. And we had all the cast and all oh, the crew, gosh. everybody in the houses. Okay. So get the place, get your publicist. Find your publicist, yeah. get that ready, and know that he or she is going to be there with you. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, also get your online streaming and, and yes. get that ready and have yes. it. And I think you can take pre-orders for that now. So yeah, you, you can, can like set it up on VHX and you mm -hmm. could be taking pre-orders from, you know. Uh, Two months out. Yeah. 
Wow, okay. And then once the festival's done, then find your theater booker. Yeah. And theater. I mean, I, I would suggest that you do that beforehand too. Like yeah. I think like, you know, bringing together that team and I don't think you have to wait until you get into Sundance to bring together that team. I would be like reaching out and finding those people before you get the call. So mm. even if you don't get the call, you know, you're gonna get the call for another festival and you've got those people, you know who you're On gonna board. work with and you've got them excited about the film, you know? Yeah. Um, so I would definitely, like I wouldn't wait until, you know, after I would, like I think, find those people. It's just like finding your crew. Find the people who are gonna be, you know, the ambassadors for this movie. What was your budget for Obsolidia <laughs> and how did you figure out what cost to a lot? The budget was about 120. And we started out looking to make it for 100. Yeah. So I had this idea. <laughs> I had worked with a Scottish producer who I knew had $100,000 to put into a movie. And he had said to me, he'd offer $100,000 to three filmmakers to make movies. And they had all said, well, can I use that to raise more money? And he had said, no, you have to make it for 100,000. And he said, it really blew me away that then they just passed on it, you know? and. I, like, I just stored that story in my head. And when I had finished writing Obsolidia, I said to, you know, we said, okay, let's hit him up for the $100,000 and let's make this movie for $100,000. And so I, at that point, we sought a line producer to make a budget because we said, okay, we want to go to this guy, this possible investor, and be able to say to him, here's the script. You know, we want the $100,000 that you offered to three other filmmakers and they turned you down. We're going to make a movie for $100,000 and here's the budget and here's how we're going to do it. You know, and here's the schedule and here's like everything and we're going to make this movie for $100,000. And so um, we then sought a, a line producer on Craigslist to do our budget for us. I put a lovely ad on Craigslist. I met a lot of different line producers. And one of them was Matt Medlin who came on board to uh to do that and he was like i can make a budget for a hundred thousand dollars a bunch of them just said you cannot make this movie for a hundred thousand dollars but so we started really with that thing of budgeting the movie like how do we make this movie for that amount you know there's two ways to approach a budget one is sort of like how much does everything cost and then add it up and see what it is and the other way is how do we make this movie possible for that amount and so you know, then we had to get real, you know, to make the movie for $100,000, we had to lose some things from the script, mm -hmm. you know, so, and, and, and change things, you know, in the original script that he had, you know, there was like, there animals, was, there children, was like a cat that was like a sort of character in the movie. No, there was gone. a little kid, gone. you know, there was like, you know, so there was things like that. There was just sort of like, uh, gone. you know, this is going to make it, you know, these are things yeah. that are not going to be possible on this budget. And I was absolutely obsessed with this has to be doable. It has to be realistic on this budget. I don't want to be making a movie that's like over ambitious for the price because I know that's like a short, you know, ticket to failure. So we were sort of, we worked and worked on the script as well. And like I cut locations, um, for instance, uh, after the main couple go on their date, there was a lovely scene in a cafe or restaurant. Instead, I made it at his house. You know, so it was things like that. So it was just like getting creative with the script to make it doable for 100,000. Um, during the process of meeting the line producers, I also met one young man called Ken Morris, uh, who was um, just really lovely and super enthusiastic about the project. He was just out of university, so we felt like he probably didn't have um, the, the necessary experience. experience to like be the producer, you know, like be a, a producer on the film. But it ended up the, the producer that we, the investor that we had initially um, hoped to get the 100,000 from, uh, it, it ended up, he wanted to invest some money in it, but he, the situation had changed for him and he didn't want to invest as much as 100,000. 
and he did love the project and became very you know uh, involved with it yeah and and was very involved in the development of it but he then didn't have the money to put up for it and so suddenly we were like oh my god what are we gonna do who are we gonna get the money from and Ken Morris this young uh, guy who I'd met as a possible line producer you know he was and I just said like let's keep him involved and you know he's a terrific young man suddenly you know he said I think I think perhaps I can get the money and he actually brought in a large part of the money and then we kicked in and then we kicked in too. the rest from our savings so it was like piecemeal together so this original person that had offered this a hundred thousand yeah. was totally out no he, he came, ended up investing he, he ended up I think putting in a 30 a, a percentage a yeah. percentage yeah yeah but not, but not but not the not the hundred thousand no. that we had hoped for yeah sure what cost the most in our budget Initially, <laughs> interestingly enough, initially one of the biggest ticket items was we were going to be shooting out in the desert for 12 days with a cast and a crew, and water was very expensive, <laughs> believe it or not. It was a really high price. Because there's certain things you can't get around. You know, like when we're shooting in the city, so I mean, our locations were actually incredibly uh, low cost because mm -hmm. we shot. Um, where we live yeah and we got this little cottage for a very small amount of money and you know shooting in the desert you don't have to pay for shooting you know we didn't get permits we you know shot in the desert um, so our location costs were very low uh, but there's certain things you can't get around like giving people water in the desert you, you know? need to have water <laughs> and you need to have a lot of it because you're in the middle of the Mojave desert I guess like actually right. just like catering and and accommodation for everyone when we were staying in the desert was we we slept in a tent in the desert like literally on the, location. Tent on the, on the set on everybody the location, else yeah. was bussed in and out you know and they were bussed to uh, the town that was nearest but it was still like 40 minutes away or something yeah so we for shooting. 12 days 11 days we stayed so those I mean I think in the tent with yeah. the coyotes and the wild burrows and donkeys and <laughs> And got real dirty. Snakes and God knows what else. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where we stayed. So we saved the production some money. We we did. But I think that like I think that gave our crew like heart. The fact that they left set every day in a bus and they were we were like going into our tent, sort of you know gave, yeah. made them work a little extra hard every day for us. Yeah. So accommodations, water. What was next? Um, accommodations, water, and the. Um, the other big ticket item was kind of the camera equipment at the time because we needed we needed backup drives and hard drives and the camera batteries um the red camera was we also, new at that time we and did also put a like i think a large percent of our budget i think we put about ten thousand dollars into um set design and art mm -hmm. direction and you know that was a choice that we made we I still feel very strongly like uh, it's funny a lot of people will spend a lot of money on the camera and then you know shoot in front of a white wall or something and it's like it's not gonna look great you know uh, like what you put in front of the camera is so important for creating a great look for your film it's not all about the camera it's about what's in front of it and so we felt very clear that like what was gonna make this movie come alive and be amazing was creating these two particular worlds the world of George and then also the world of the scientists out in the desert. And we created that set completely from scratch. And so we definitely, like, 
I know comparatively, and I remember talking about yeah. it with Matt, like, you know, when you would go through the budget and we spent so much time, all the t time as you do, line by line, where can we save, how can we cut, you know? And that was something that was high percentage-wise in our budget, but I think it really, really did pay off. And it's funny, because like, I think that was like $10,000 compared to, for instance, our wardrobe costs were $500 for the whole movie. Uh, so you see, you know, it's like, and it's these choices that you make, but I think, uh, uh, costuming, you know, you can pull things together um, if it's if it's contemporary, obviously, you know, if you're shooting and it's something you can pull things together pretty cheaply and easily. But what you're putting in front of the camera, like, you know, the decoration of places and what those worlds are like, I just think it's so crucial and it's really somewhere that is worth spending more money. Yeah, definitely shows, especially where he lives. I mean, it's, it's yeah. an artistic, yeah. it's an artist film. And yeah, yeah, yeah for beautiful. sure. When it was all said and done, the 120,000, how much were you sort of over budget? I know 100,000 sounded like that was what you wanted with post. Yeah. How, how, how did and that so that's work? That's why it ended up, that's mm -hmm. why like ultimately the film was more expensive than we had originally. But yeah. I think even like, I think actually our budget when we finally, when we went to production, we had already moved up to about 105 or something, you know, and then, um, and then continue and continue to move up. So it did. It it was sort of like over budget. The shoot wasn't over budget. The shoot stayed completely within the 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 thing that we hadn't fully budgeted post for. Realistically, yeah. was was post. You yeah. know, in particular, sound, which uh, was more expensive than we had anticipated. Very, yeah, because of wind in the desert, or well, that did play a factor in it. It did. There was some yeah. wind issues. And <laughs> there were. I didn't hear them, but I, yeah. I noticed it was very clean. There was, was some like, wind wow, issues, that, but we that did play a factor in it. Because but not. we paid for a decent sound mix. I mean, we had a great sound recorder on set, a sound mixer, Tom Curley, who was phenomenal, and he did a great job, and he got us great sound. Um, but then I think, you know, and it's just that thing, like, you know, for a film to work, it, it need, the sound does need to be half decent. And we did, so we did end up spending a, a decent bit of money to get a proper professional sound mix, sound mix done. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of those tiny but movies don't do that. And and also uh, as know, well, this is because it is expensive and it does uh, kill them. And, and, uh, and <laughs> you know, it can kill them. We we weren't we weren't on that as much as we should have been from the get go. Again, it gets into building your team earlier as opposed to waiting till the last minute. We if we'd have built that team a little earlier, I think we probably would have been in a position where we could have negotiated a better price with the sound yeah with the people that we chose but they saw that we were behind the eight ball so they basically you know pushed their agenda more than ours with rebel heart film and the artists that you plan to speak to across the country what tips would you share with them on keeping their budget down wow well, there's so many. There's so many. In the script, I mean, just look at your script realistically, and everything that's not necessary, get rid of it. I mean, if it doesn't serve the story, it doesn't need to be there. I mean, that's that's like first and foremost, because you know that in post-production, in editing, you're probably going to lose a lot of stuff that you didn't need. So if your it script should not be more than 100 pages. Yeah. If it doesn't serve the story, <laughs> yeah. lose it. Because don't shoot stuff you're not going to use. You're yeah. not going to use more than 100 pages worth of footage. It's just not going to happen. You're yeah. not make, unless you're making one piece. You're not making you one know? piece. Um, yeah. That's definitely, that's definitely like, I, I would go, you that know. That would be the number one thing. Make sure if, it, if it's like, you know, between 95 to 100 pages, you're in the right ballpark. Once you start getting into 120 pages, you're just, 
stroking your own ego. And you're just shooting stuff that's going to end up on the floor, you know. Yeah. So why waste days that are, you know, that, you know, that cost money for stuff that you're not going to use. Another thing that I would say is just from like day one is, you know, use and it's that thing like conceive your script around what you have and use what you have. So as I said about Obsolidia, something that we were, you know, a way that we really kept our costs down was we use locations that we didn't have to pay for, you know? So I, I mean, it's an old thing saying, oh, you know, think of a movie that can be shot in your house or, you know, just use the things like the car in, our, in the film was our car, everything. It's, it's finding these, it's being sort of ingenious about making use of what you can get for free. Uh, that is going to keep your budget way down. It's when you have to start paying thing for you know each of those things that uh, costs can mount. When you ask people for locations that you want to shoot at, don't tell them you're shooting a film. Tell them you're shooting a video. Always yeah. play it down. <laughs> Never yeah. play it up. Always yeah. say, like we're a just a little video. student video. We're just doing this little... And make sure you have at least one producer with a student ID. Yeah, we're doing a PSA. We're doing a you public know? service announcement. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. all we're doing. It's nothing big. It's nothing fancy. And always play it down. And the more you play it down, the more likely, two things, more likely you are to get the location. And um, the... The other thing is, is that they'll feel sorry for you and give it to you cheaper than <laughs> what they would normally give it to a film for. Uh, you know, I think also though, it's a kind of like, I mean, it's really being strategic. When We've obviously gotten into a conversation about locations, but locations can be such a huge cost in your yeah. film. Um, one of the locations in Obsolidia that was really a star for us was the, the Museum of Jurassic Technology, which is a museum here in Los Angeles that a lot of people have tried to film in before and they never, never allowed camera crew in before. And you know, the reason that we managed to get permission and we didn't have to pay for it. We didn't pay a dime. We were prepared to pay for it, but he gave it to us. He for gave free. it to us was, you know, it was just that thing about, we created a relationship with uh, David Wilson who owns and created the museum. I, you know, I gave him the script. I talked to him about why it was so important to have the museum in the film, what it represented, why it was like an integral part of the story and it wasn't just something you know like oh wouldn't this be cool you know it was like everything had a reason and you know and he ended up you know really being a huge fan of the the script and then the project and so he wanted to support it and i think like you know overall like that sort of tactic as a way you know if we're talking about how to save money in your budget overall is to take that sort of grassroots community approach to get people involved and it's not about getting people to do stuff for free and you know like you know it but it is like creating a community who are, are investing in the film in different ways you know so that you know it's not about the money and one of the things i wrote actually in that craigslist ad right at the beginning when i was looking for a line producer was you know if you're looking for a money gig this is not that film you know this is a film to do because you absolutely love the idea of this film and you want to be involved in helping make it it get made you know and if you feel that and you enjoy you like the people that you meet who are already working on it then this is you know then it's a film for you but it's not about the money and i think the more that you can attract people and again I, it's not about like not paying people because i like everybody did get paid everybody on all Solidia, except for us yeah <laughs> we had deferred payments but everybody else did get paid you know and i think that's important and because they they deserve to be they're doing work you know um, but a way to keep the cost down is to really get everyone inspired. So there is like this feeling of, you know, we're trying to do something together as a community and we're all investing in it. And that, that will help keep your budget down because you will find a numerous ways 
to cut costs. And an example, another example of that in a certain way is that Chris would make breakfast for everybody, but fantastic breakfast. So, you know, like our catering budget was slashed because yeah. we were making the food. But again, that's something that's like, it seems like, oh, it's just about cutting the cost, but it's actually about creating a community thing again, you know, because they feel cared for. They, you, when yeah. the crew come up and it's like you, you know, like making the food and you've like, you've put some love and heart into that food for them. And you've been doing different. it since two o'clock in the morning, yeah. Yeah. So but I think, slept in a tent. Yeah, yeah. so I yeah. feel like there is a, you know, it's just, it, you know, that question about how to cut costs, you know, also to me feeds in, it's like how to make a movie in a way that's like, you know, that's more fulfilling for everybody and it's not about the money, you know, and engaging everybody who works on the film and everybody who's partaking it as much as possible into that philosophy. The painful decision to cut certain scenes that you really wanted, oh but the cost was just too much, whether it was the scene with the cat or the kid that you'd planned to put in the film. What, was there any moment where you really had to hunker down and say, how can we not use this scene, but still have it relevant? Something no, absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think that happens all the time. Like I think for me and also in my second film, I, I think that came up a lot as well. Um, where you're going, okay, we can't afford to do this, but you know, for me as a writer, and it's fortunate if you're the, you know, if you're the director and you're also the writer, you can, you, f you figure these things out. You think, okay, we can't afford to do that. What is the essence of this scene though? Why is it there? What is the, you know, what's the story beat? What is, what are we learning about the character? You know, and how can we maintain that and retain the heart of what's going on, but do it in a way that won't cost as much. And I think there's always a creative answer to that and there's always a way to do it. And it's it's not painful. Um, there is definitely, there's a phrase that people say about filmmaking, uh, that you have to be willing to kill your babies. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard that many times. <laughs> and you know, it's absolutely true. And that that's part of it though too. You know, sometimes you think that is one of the best pieces of dialogue I've written in my life and now I have to cut it, you know? Um, but I think if it's really that great, it will find a way some other time. <laughs> like if you've come up with a line that's like, amazing it will find another place you know if you've come up with an idea for a scene i think like you know it'll happen some other way like i, I feel like again it's practicing non-attachment but uh you know you, you let it go you just you focus constantly what's the heart what's what is essential i've heard also about screenwriting and i think it's true of filmmaking too which is like it's like a line drawing and you just want to like narrow it down to that line you know um don't you know, don't convolute it at all. It's like try to draw that person in one single line. And I think a film, it's like really get rid of everything that's not necessary. That goes into like the budget thing that you said yeah. before, you know, to, to help keep the budget low. Get rid of everything that's not necessary. And actually you'll probably find that you make a better film because of that. What opportunities came to the two of you from Sundance that probably would not have happened had you not shown there? Same with the Independent Spirit Awards. Well, Film Independent, I went along and did the producer's program at Film Independent, which was a great experience. And then right on the heels of that, I did the film producer's weekend, long weekend up at the Sundance Ranch, up in Sundance itself. Um, they invited me there. And that was a great experience because I got to meet some of my, you know, heroes as far as producers and filmmakers are concerned because they were a part of Sundance alumni to come and give you know talks and help you figure out certain aspects about producing and that was that was a great experience to have that um, and that wouldn't have been available to me well, it would have been available but 
it was it wasn't I wasn't an invitee yeah. yeah and as a result of uh, as a result of Obsolidia at Sundance I was invited to these things which was great and then um, Ashland Film Festival which is in Southern Oregon it's run by uh, Joanne Feinberg and she our film went there uh, and won the festival and Joanne invited us the following year to be selectors for the program to be on the jury to be on the jury and that was a great experience as well and that's an amazing film festival and it's an amazing film festival it was um I, obviously like when you if you're so lucky as to have a film at sundance a lot of doors do open you know and without a doubt i think it you know it's that thing like it it gave us a certain level of validation you know um with what we were doing and I was selected to, go to attend the um, Sundance Screenwriters Lab, which was phenomenal and was working on another film. We did have a little break. We had a baby uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago. So that, that took us out of the circuit a little bit. But, um, you know, also uh, I made, I've just made my second film. I have no doubt, of course, that it was because of Obsolidia that I was um, able to have that opportunity to make a second film, which is a much bigger budget. There's no way I would have, you know, been given that opportunity if I hadn't already directed a film. Uh, and also, I think, directed one you know, that, that did reasonably well. So I think, I mean, just going to Sundance, we met so many people. Yeah. Our, our world sort of expanded so much. We felt, I, I think, one of the beautiful things with Sundance in particular is you really feel part of a community. There's a feeling of like being part of this sort of family, and it's a beautiful family to be in where they really nurture uh, and help uh, yeah, the people I mean, within it. You know, you've got people who run that, you know who run the institute people like michelle satter or you've got you know you've got um john nine or you know shiri or any of the programmers in you know, trevor groth at the head of the table there organizing the programmers i mean these are just all very passionate people about artists and storytellers and so you can't help but be affected by their enthusiasm when they invite you to come along to that party you're like oh my god this is amazing you know but okay. as a result of that, I mean, definitely, I feel like so many, I mean, there are like a myriad of opportunities. You know, I had other yeah. writing jobs since then, which again, wouldn't have happened had I not had this film. And without a doubt, it was like, it was a combination of being at Sundance, a couple, one review in particular that was very favorable to the film. Todd McCarthy. Yeah, which, which I, you know, I think that was something that turned a lot of heads and really got me a lot of meetings and, and, and helped me progress with with my work yeah. Doubt. yeah but that was that was really it really opened a lot of like it like diane said it really expanded our film world community and from there we went on to meet other really enthusiastic filmmakers and and you know still stay in touch with them to this day you know so when you meet other filmmakers or you receive maybe an email or something on social media and they ask you a question, what question is that usually? Hmm. Well, all filmmakers independently <laughs> are always looking for, where can we get money? <laughs> that was like okay. the thing that we, I think that was like the question we got asked most when we were in festivals. It was always like, the first question was, always, like the first question after our premiere at Sundance was, how much did your film cost and where did you get the money? And I was kind of like, Really? That's what you you just sat and watched this movie, and that's what you want to know. Um, a lot of a movies. lot of filmmakers do want to. Uh, the, the question about money is one that definitely seems to trouble a lot of filmmakers. 
where did they get it from? And it's it's always a it's always like <laughs> where did you get the money from? Yeah, I always find it's the least interesting question in a way. You know, I just think yeah. God, there's so many more exciting things to talk about when we talk about films. But the but the <laughs> that is a question that comes up a lot. Where did you get the finances? And the runner-up question. Um, how did you find your actors was a very big one. You know, it was a big big question. Normally that came from people who were either actors or aspiring actors. But for the most part, it was it was always like, where did you find your actors? <laughs> I mean, the performances were amazing. How did you find them? What was, how did that come to be? And then, you know, when, when we tell them that Gaynor is a family friend, a really close family friend, and her husband also did the music. He, his name is Liam Howe, and he had a band called The Sneaker Pimps, and now he produces music and he's doing Diane's second film as well. Okay. Um, and then when we tell them that George, the character George, is played by Mike Picciarelli, I mean, I met him as a result of the two of us talking about Hemingway books. And that was, you know, we met impromptu and he saw I was reading a Hemingway book and we got chatting and he, that was how he got cast as the part of George, you know. Just here in Los Angeles? Here in LA. Wow. And he had, he had come here from Europe with his wife and you know they were both pursuing modeling commercial and acting careers and you know this was his first big break yeah so those are the so the money is the huge question that money people want to know actors how to do that yeah yeah money and actors that was the big questions what is your first step in writing a screenplay I mean how much time are you spending um, developing the character? Are you developing the idea first, the character second? How does it work? I think it all happens sort of organically and it does take a long time, you know? I think, you know, you just, there's little ideas percolating around all the time and you think, oh, okay, well maybe that could be interesting and you start writing some stuff and developing and sometimes you find you flush it out. It's just not that, it's not gonna engage you for a, a film. And sometimes you just find this little germ of an idea, you know, and it can just be, you know, a single thought or a little, you know, some little thing, you know, or a person or whatever. And it, one little thing and then it starts to just like pool things together. You know, you start to see the, the resonances of different things. I really love that approach to writing a screenplay, you know, that it's really it's an act of curiosity and discovery. I feel like when you write a screenplay, it's like um, being an archaeologist. You're excavating something that already exists somehow. Um, and I think that sort of organic path for me is definitely the way that bears the most fruit. When I try to be clever or try to do it in a more strategic way, I think it, the, the results are less interesting. But when it just comes, you know, my second film is about a yoga teacher uh, who is uh, meets her biological sister for the first time. Half sister. Half sister. For the first time as an adult and her half sister is a sex worker. I mean, for me like this came partly like I was working in a, I was doing some volunteering in a homeless shelter and I talked to this woman and it was, and she told me this story and it, you know, and it was just something about her and this story about being rescued that really, re you know, just like it got me, you know, and I started thinking about just people from different walks of life. And for me, I've worked as a yoga teacher and I actually taught in a, a social welfare center for prostitutes for a while. And that had really made an impression on me. You know, I thought about, I mean, a lot about those women and the violence with which they lived. And, 
you know, how does someone help them? And you know, it's when you start like just pulling things together that you're interested in and it starts to make its own shape. And I feel like you can't force that phase. It's sort of like having a baby. It just grows by itself in your belly for quite a long time before you give birth. And I think writing a screenplay is like that. You know, you have to allow yourself that gestation period, you know, where you're just, you know, letting things percolate and letting yourself like just wander and letting yourself be open to what might be around the corner that could be the thing that, you know, that explains something. Um, I feel like it's a, you know, it's just, a, it's a journey, you know, writing a screenplay, it's a journey. You're discovering this thing. Uh, and you just want to be really open to what it could be and, and, and enjoy it. And certainly doing Obsolidia, it also happened in a really organic way. Um, or I had certain ideas, but then when we went out to the desert, it was sort of like, oh, it just suddenly made sense. This is a road movie, you know, and it's a road movie about two people going to this place that's really what the earth is going to look like in the future, you know, and they're obsessed with that. And I, I feel like as a screenwriter, I often see this kind of advice to screenwriters, which goes something like, you know, read the trades and um, <laughs> and see what's selling and, you know, and then write something like that and study other screenplays. and. I think, good God, you know, I mean, I think reading a lot of books is very important. I think reading, uh, watching tons of movies is super important. Reading some screenplay so you understand the format and the craft, but then like allowing yourself the space to really go off the reservation, you know, and just allowing it to form in its own way. Because the first draft is really, I mean, it's just the start of a very long journey. You're going to rewrite your script at least 20 times before you shoot. You know, I, I don't, I've never heard of anyone that does less than probably 20 drafts from a first script to a shooting script, you know? And if they do, I'd love to meet them. But I think most people, it's, it's like, it's a, you know, it's a process, you know? And your first draft, you just wanna make yourself as free as you can and as honest as you can and as curious as you can and let things unfold. And that will, I think that gives you the best chance of writing something that's gonna be, you know, engaging and unique. But you've said there have been times when you've abandoned ideas that they just weren't, yeah. you weren't as obsessed with them maybe as you would have liked. At what point do you usually know that? Or it, I'm sure it varies, but how do you know that, you know, I'm not totally... It doesn't matter. Well, it's just when you feel it. You just feel, it's just like, like the, you know, like that look that you just gave. It's like, you just feel it, like you're just not that interested. Like you start something and then three days later, you're not interested. I mean, I do have a thing when I'm writing a first draft where I generally say I write four to five pages a day. Once I, once I start to write the script, you know, like for, uh, I'll let myself have months of just like pulling things together. He'll know, and I'm always buying books that are connected to whatever it is and watching films, you know, just like just filling up all the well in a sense. And then I reach a certain point where I'm like, I'm ready to write the script, you know? And, and then I, I'm totally strict about just, you know, I'll set myself like four pages a day or five pages a day. And that is it. Like, there's no excuse. You know, if it takes you all day, it takes all day. If it takes an hour, it takes an hour, but that's the minimum you're going to write every day. Then I get the script done that way. And, um, you know, I think like when you're in that process, like somewhere, usually before you actually start writing a script, you just know, like, it's just, if it's, if it's not that interesting to you, the resonances aren't there. If you're having to force it, you know, at this stage, then I feel like abandon it, ab jump ship, you know, because at that stage of gestation and leading up to writing your first draft, if it's not holding you, then it's, it's not going to hold you, you know, and maybe it will come to you later. You know, I, I have had that experience. I think actually, um, 
my second film is, is a, was a little like that because I think I'd had the idea of I've had it for years percolating, you know, the idea of a yoga teacher and a sex worker and this relationship between them, you know, and so it was something, but I couldn't really find it. I couldn't really crack it before. And then suddenly it was like, oh yeah, I get it. They're sisters, you know, and different things, you know, came into that. So, you know, I think sometimes if you do have a good idea, but it's not quite working out and you're having to force it and you're pushing through it, you know, sometimes the best thing is just to leave it, set it aside, work on something else. And then maybe it's a year later, two years later, three years later, you come back to it and you go, now I know what that needs, you know, and, and it can go again. And you write at the library? I mean, is that, is that generally where you, why? Yeah. You're not distracted? Or maybe you're inspired. <laughs> it's a mix. I think when I moved to Los Angeles, I did find like I missed, I, I moved here from Barcelona, Spain, and I'm from Scotland. And like something in Europe, we have a lot of street life and sort of like different kinds of people around us all the time. And Los Angeles can feel like a little bit like you're in a bubble and sort of separate from people and everyone's in their car. And then you go to places where you see other people that are kind of like you. And, you know, and something that I love about the library here, besides the fact that it's just beautiful and I always love, li I've loved libraries all my life. When I was a child, I wanted to be a librarian. Um, so I think like I just feel very at home in them. And uh, I love the fact here, though, that there's different kinds of people and there's different kinds of stories all around you. And I, I love that. Like when I'm writing, I'll be totally focused. But then I just sort of, you know, you, then you can get up and look at some books and read some poetry and, and, and watch people engage. And in the library, there's like really, really interesting people. and There's all walks of life. And I love that. I thrive on that. And I think, you know, if you're a storyteller and an observer of humans, you know, it's a good place to be. Coping mechanisms and advice for screenwriters going through development hell. <laughs> oh my goodness. Get to the end of the script. Because <laughs> um, you can cut it out afterwards. But get to the end. Get okay. to the finish. I mean, I do go, they call it hell for a reason. When you're like working with other people um, and you're in development hell, I, what that means to me is that you're having creative differences with the people you're working with and already having like a different vision of the movie you're trying to make. I think that's why it's development hell. Perhaps also because it's stalling because you're trying to attach people, maybe that's it. But if it's, if it's actually about the script, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I think one of the most important things, and it depends what kind of uh, film you're working on, if it's, if it's like your heart, if the script is something that's from your heart and that's really yours, if it's not working with the people you're working with, find other people to work with. If it's not right then and you're in development yeah. and it's hell, get out and find a different way to make your movie. You know, if it's if it's your movie. It's different if if it's you know, you're you're a writer for hire on something and You know it's that not, going then in. Then it's not but then it's not your heart. And then it shouldn't be your hell. It's their hell, <laughs> you know. So then you, you know, like you let you, you know. Then I think you have to just practice a happy detachment, you know, and really deliver what the people who are paying your bills want and need, and let go of your own ego and deliver what they want. Yeah. But if it's your heart, if From it's the your, if it's your film, something that you've written and you love, and you find yourself in a situation in development that the people you're working with are not. Um, uh, you know, on the same page as you, I would yeah. find a way to get the hell out of that because it's not going to get easier. Making a movie with somebody, it's like, okay, two we're lucky because we are married. It's two years. <laughs> it's a marriage. Uh -huh. Well, you it's know? two years of your life. And people say sure. it. It's, yeah, you're going to be working with them for, you know, in some cases more. Two years. Longer. Possibly more. And more than that, you're going to go through so much. And really, if you don't have, I think it's so important when you start out with somebody, like if you're looking for somebody to collaborate with on your movie, it's just so important to find the right people to do it with. And the right people are not necessarily the most experienced. 
and they're not necessarily you know the ones with the fanciest offices or, or the ones with the most money that's not necessarily the right people to make your movie with the right people are the ones who really share your vision of the movie and I mean that creatively I mean that also in the sense of what the movie will be after it's finished you know like that you have similar goals that you share values just like getting married to somebody you know you're gonna have a happy marriage if you share values and you share certain goals and you want the same things and you're not gonna have a happy marriage if you don't and if you are in that situation with a film you know it can be as miserable as a bad marriage so it's and it's not worth it you know so I, I sort of go like if it if there's development hell like coping strategies other than like yoga every morning and meditation <laughs> you know and like really like just you know, like Limited caffeine. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. You know, yeah. like those are all good coping strategies. But I also go like, to be honest, if it's really bad at the beginning, try to find a way to get out of it. Yeah, because it's not going to get better. Yeah. Because it gets progressively more and more um, tumultuous the further down the road you go. Why? Because other people's agendas start to bleed into your um, your ideas and your creative work and what everybody said they were getting on board for at the beginning changes. And when they start to see either success or failure, then they start to detach or attach themselves to it, right? And so then they try to enforce their will upon your initial ideas. And so if it's not working at the beginning, it's not going to work. It's at the end, it's going to be ugly. And it's, I mean, filmmaking is hard, you know, like there's no, way around, there's no way around it when you're actually, and not just the shoot, you know, I mean, shoots are hard, but shoots are also fun because there's a lot of people around, you know, but it's a long process and there's always challenges and there's always going to be unexpected things, you know, and there's always going to be very difficult things. And if you are doing it with people that you have, you know, that you're solid and tight with that can still be fun even with all the challenges but if you're not if you know when when things get difficult and you're not on the same page it's going to be a thousand times worse mm -hmm. so with rebel heart films the you know the classes that you are teaching across the country you have a video or two that talk about you know what you're offering and it shows a, a prior class or two and you say that you feel that the studio system does not want the little guy to tell stories how do we compete in a marketplace with such beautiful personal films as Obsolidia is and this other film that you're making and, and others that we've seen, but how do we compete as filmmakers with franchises and sequels? Could I just jump in right now and Please just say? Do. You can't. Yeah, I was going to say, let's lose the idea of competing. Okay. You know, you're offering something completely different. Okay. Yeah. So it's you an know, offering. Okay. Yeah, and I think, you know, connecting with people, finding, I mean, meaningful connections, with other human beings and it's not about competing with studios you know okay. you're creating your own work and and putting your heart into it and offering it out for people to share and they, they there is a an element of the fact that they want to keep the lion's share of the marketplace and they don't want to allow anybody to come in and feed from that table but the fact of the matter is is that creativity has always found a way to um, rise to the top and filmmakers good filmmakers and good storytellers will find a way to rise to the top and they they don't want that to happen unless it's on their agenda unless they're you're working for them but 
the fact of the matter is, is that creativity and artists and writers, directors, they always find a way to outcreate the problems or the obstacles that are put in front of them. And that, in essence, is the whole idea of independent filmmaking. You outcreate the obstacles in order to be able to still get across this very small independent stories that speak to people and that they really feel connected to. And that's, that's something that comes from true artism. You know, I mean, that's it. And I think this is one of the things that's interesting. Like, I feel like um, a lot of people are aware, like, studios don't hire very many women to direct movies. I think the rate last year was 7% of studio movies were directed by women. Um, they don't hire people of color. You know, the kinds of movies, the kind of stories they want to tell or, you know, again, maybe have a certain agenda or something. And so I feel like it's, you know, like, it's just very important to me. Like, I feel somebody, I just the other voices are heard, have the chance to be heard. It's very important for audiences to seek out those other voices and support them. You know, like people always talk about, well, we need more films by women. I'm like, well, you have to support them, you know? Like, it's that thing about being the change, you know, and, and really endeavoring uh, to, to give money to the projects that you feel, you know, reflect your own values. Um, I, I feel like, right now there's an amazing possibility for independent filmmakers it didn't even exist five years ago never mind ten years ago i mean for the first time you can make a movie and five years ago we were already in the place where you didn't need that much money to make a movie and make it look great you know and ten years ago that was impossible let's just say that right like even if you um shot a film you you know you used the latest digital technology it just didn't look that great five years ago it looks amazing you know and now it's amazing. Like you can shoot a film for really like such a little amount of money, but really have it uh, of a extremely high quality, visually and audially. You know. So the next part of the puzzle, I think, for filmmakers was like, how do we distribute our work? You know. And that's the thing that's kind of evolving right now, and that's really exciting because I go, there's now, there really are opening up platforms and uh, opportunities for independent filmmakers that, again, didn't exist five years ago. So five years ago, you could make that movie, but it was like, what are you going to do with it now? You know, other than sort of like I burn a bunch of DVDs and go out and sell them on the road or something, you know? And so now with digital streaming, and this is just like a revolution, you know, uh, there's the possibility that we can, we can get our work out, you know? And it's really about building the audiences and creating them. I think educating people, inspiring them, you know, like our friends, our families, exposing people to different kinds of films and encouraging them to be curious about different kinds of films, you know? To, I find it fascinating. I don't know about you, but at school, we spend a lot of time learning how to read books and we're exposed to like great literature and it kind of blows my mind that we don't do that with films, that we don't introduce people to the history of cinema and teach them, you know, really how to read a film and how to, and how to appreciate it on a different level. I feel like a lot of people still, you know, there's these opportunities to just like to grow audiences, you know, to bring them to more, you know, more exciting movies. Playing devil's advocate for a moment, though, do you really feel that the studio system does not want the little guy? Maybe they're just not interested in the films, not because they're not beautiful works of art, but because they feel they won't fill theater seats, they won't. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think studios work from a bottom line, you know? Um, 
Definitely. Like, I don't think they're, they're sitting plotting how to keep the little guy out. You know, th I mean, they're just businesses. You know, yeah. they, they're like, you know, they have shareholders and they're just about sure. making... It's all about margins. It's, it's just about money. Yeah, it's, it's not margins. a power struggle. It's just... It's yeah. not but a it, power... it, it is a power struggle in a different way, I think. And this is one of the interesting things, you know, because I feel like the films that they make, basically, they they support the power structure as it exists, you know? So, for example, we were talking earlier about women in films and not only the fact that so few women direct them but also so few films are about women right true and you know so i think like again like it's something like 15 percent of speaking parts were women even though 50 you percent know? of the audience out there is women and you know and i feel like studios they don't you know because they have a certain uh, uh agendas in place and their their priority their priority is not to change the world you know their priority is not to make a more fair society their Keep priority is to make money sure, <laughs> you know sure. So then I feel it's really up to, you know, again, individual filmmakers to make those changes. Are they, are studios like sitting trying to keep you out? No, but do they, do they care about trying to make films, you know, about minority groups or that reflect the world in a more fair way? They don't care. They want to make money. Or they do allow a woman, let's say Unbroken, to direct and then it's held up to, it seems like unfair scrutiny little bit, my mm -hmm. opinion. Yeah. So it's interesting how sure. that happens. Or, or and and they do allow a woman to direct who happens to be Angelina Jolie, one of the biggest movie stars in the world. <laughs> you know? I'd just like to point that out. Sure. It's, like, it's a built-in sure. audience. You know? But still uh, held up to a, uh, yeah. a little Absolutely. bit of scrutiny Absolutely. that maybe yeah. is Absolutely. a little unfair. It's, uh, yeah, for yeah. sure. And, and then the same, with, the, the same with um, uh, Ava DuVernay, who just did Selma. I sure. mean, I guarantee that... Which is the, an independent film, though. Yeah, I guarantee that the critical... Uh, the critics who, you know, look at that film will be, you know, going through it with a fine tooth comb as opposed to had it been like, you know, a regular old, you know, guy. You I mean, the, the bottom line is right now, like if you care about a certain kind of cinema, uh, it's not going to be made through the studio system. You know, if you're into like generally speaking you know something that's like a little bit more experimental or you know more female driven that's more that's more character based in fact yeah you know the studios as we're you know as as we all know are not really making those kinds of films and so you have to find a way to make it yourself outside outside of that system yeah Diane, you were telling me something about a certain test, like it's almost like a litmus test to see how female-friendly a film is, and I was fascinated to hear more about it. Yeah, so this test, I'm, I hope I'm going to pronounce it right, is the Bechdel. It might be the Bechdel uh, test. And I first read about it not long after I made Obsolidia, and basically the test asks, the first question is, are there two women in the movie? And if there are, do they both have names? And then the second question is, if they both, if there are two women in the movie and they both have names, and most movies actually fail on that first question, okay? But the second question is, if there are, do they talk to each other? And like, I think then it's something like, you know, 90% of movies fail or something. And then the third question is, and if there are these two women and they do talk to each other, is it about something other than men? Um, and, <laughs> you know, so this is like an interesting uh, test that I think really highlights for people like the extent of the problem that we have, you know, like we're just not really aware of it. And then you, when you ask these questions, they seem so basic and you realize most movies don't have that. You realize this is a bit of a mess. Um, I realized myself with my first film that it failed the test. So there are two women in Obsolidia. They do have names, but they never meet and they never talk to each other. So... And I was really like, when I, when I realized that, I really, I felt like 
just kind of devastated because you know um i feel so strongly about sort of women's issues and um i just i, I right then i was like okay that's never gonna happen again in one of my films <laughs> right you know it's like it, that's that's not happening and i deliberately set out i actually i wrote one film uh which went to the sundown screenwriters lab that was about two sisters called stem which we're still hoping uh plan to produce probably uh 2016 and then I wrote this other one about uh, two women who meet, who are, who find out they're biological sisters. It's, and that was also for me, I mean, the movie is completely driven by a sort of feminist um, agenda in a certain sense. You know, it was partly based on my real experiences as a yoga teacher teaching in a social welfare center for prostitutes and kind of what I witnessed there. And, you know, some of the women that I felt who were living with extraordinary levels of violence in their life and how that seemed acceptable in our society that these women live like that and everyone just sort of turns a blind eye and says well you know that's their life um the numbers of women who are killed by their partners every month uh you know and so this the movie definitely came from that place but i think it's just really important i realized for myself it's that thing that we talk about be the change you know if you're not happy with the fact that there's not more women in films, then it's your duty to make sure that if you make a film, there are, you know? And I think, you know, um, each of us as filmmakers and creators, we have a responsibility. The films we make, they don't just reflect our reality, they also create it, you know? You're part of like creating what you think society is when you make a film. It's, you're not just holding up a mirror to it and saying, this is how it is. You know, it's like, it's also like what it becomes. And I think it's really, really important that people are aware of that you know and if you're a screenwriter and you're writing a script you know, just ask yourself it's like you know you know could this character be a woman is there any reason why not i think if i was doing obsolete now i'd probably have the scientist be a woman you know and it, you know and it wouldn't have you know the story would be exactly the same I, like and just with how i feel now about it and the knowledge that i have i would probably like I, that's probably something that i would have done you know and something that I will do in the future. Like, I'm just like, from now on, you know, that's something to be really conscious about. Mm -hmm. And also, too, the character choices of the females that you portray, because there's definitely women in films, but it seems like they're a certain stereotype often, especially, you know, I mean, nothing to not, you know, not to not bridesmaids or whatever, but there's just sort of the funny girl, the, the, the mean girl, you know, there's yeah. nothing that's necessarily like a role model well I definitely yeah I was very conscious of that when I was making my se this second film like I wanted this woman like I wanted a story about a woman who rescues another woman and I felt like it you know, it's definitely for me a film that is kind of a celebration yeah. of female friendship and sisterhood and you know what women should do for each other um, and I, I really, I did want to, I very consciously wanted to make that because I, I'm so like indebted and so grateful to all my female friends and sisters in this world. Um, I definitely wanted to do something too, where you see a woman doing something heroic. And like, I, I just feel like I've seen so many movies where, you know, it's a guy goes to rescue a woman and that sort of story, um, plays out again and again and women are always victims and need men to solve their murders and need men to you know also just point out all the men are the ones who have murdered them um you know and i just thought i just really wanted to see you know to see something different to create a different narrative about a woman who decides to help another woman and whatever the cost is to her personally she is willing to bear it because she knows it's the right thing to do mm. 
when you presented this story out in the world, how <coughs> were those characters perceived? Were they ever told to maybe, can you play it down a little? Can you ha make her a little more girly or, or, or could you make her less I, this or that? I mean, I think I was quite lucky. Like, I mean, to be honest, the road to production with that movie was pretty fast. Like I pitched the idea, um, uh, our son was three months old. Yeah. I pitched the idea to uh, a producer, a producer, Greg Amon, who was phenomenal, who immediately got on board to develop the movie. And then we were um, very lucky that when we were ready to go out with the script, uh, which I think was maybe maybe like eight months later or something, nine months later, we had a script that we were ready to, uh, you know, to raise finance with. The very first company we went to wanted to finance the movie. And they, they totally got behind the vision. I mean, I think that was one of the things that, they, that got them excited about it. And obviously because there was two very strong female parts in the in the script we were able to get like amazing actresses even though it's not a you know like a high budget movie um we got two phenomenal actresses jessica beal and zasha mamet uh who are just amazing and you know and obviously they were drawn to it because they're you know they don't get the opportunity to play these kinds of uh, most roles of, very often most you know, of the that women are, that read the script wanted to do it most of them yeah i mean yeah. you know because it's that thing of there's 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 not an there's not enough like um, multi-layered, uh, yeah, roles for women. Or the That's dynamics crazy. between, well, yeah. they're also, not competing over a man, I guess. Yeah, and they had dimensional yeah. characters. Mm -hmm. They were they were fully flushed out. They had good dimensions to them. They weren't just, you know, bland. They were very colorful. Of, it is kind of, you know, half the story does, half of that movie is kind of like a love story between these two women and yeah. not in a romantic sense. And I felt that was something really important to show. and. To share that that you know that that happens and there's um you know that it's you know that friendship that can evolve between two people you know that's such a powerful and beautiful thing uh, so i really wanted to celebrate that in the movie so it's a new year 2015 right yeah last time i checked great yeah so and um <laughs> paradigm shift you had a new sort of awakening what prompted that yeah so this kind of brewed for us last year i think didn't it yeah f and i would say at the in the middle to the end of 2014 we sat down and realized we have got to take control of what we're doing and go in a completely different direction instead of chasing the dream let's make the dream ourselves and make it a reality and so that was yeah. that was a big paradigmic shift and I think, for us yeah because i think like after obsolidian it was kind of curious like we had made that completely off the grid and without any support from sort of the mainstream system but what happened and it was an interesting thing because it got into sundance and suddenly we got you know these like all these doors sort of opened and we sort of settled into this the conventional pattern you know like going to meetings and just doing things like you know like everything in the conventional sort of expected way of our industry which was the opposite of how we had made obsolidia i mean if we'd made tried to make obsolidia that way we never would have made it mm -mm. and so you know suddenly we were in that and we settled in and you know now i was making my second film and it was during that process so that we just were like you know i had some frustrations making it and i was like i just want to make something again like obsolidia like and i thought back to that experience and i was like damn, like we really figured something out with that, you know? And we did it kind of innocently, Happenstance, you know? Like yeah. we didn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't strategic. It just like happened. But I went, the way that we did that is the, like, is the clue for the future. And I thought, I just want to get back to that. Like I want to make stuff, like just find a way to like 
enable ourselves to, to be empowered to make the films that we want to make and get them out there. And I realized for, for myself, and I mean, we talked about this a lot, you know, we realized to make that happen and to sustain it, you know, does involve creating more community. You know, it's like, and I, I talked about this on a blog, I'm like, you know, definitely for this new model to exist, if you don't want to be part of the mainstream system, so you're getting like your money and your power from the people, the powers that already exist, and you have to wait for them to choose you in a sense to make your movie, and then you have to like jump through the hoops to make the movie right for them. You know, if you're going to try and do this in a completely other way where it's like a little punk rock, like we're going to do it ourselves, we're going to make our movie and then we're going to sell it, and, yeah. you know, then you need to like engage and we need to like build community and we need to support each other, you know. And for me, I had always been very reticent about being involved in any social media. I was just like, I'm not a social media person. Um, and, you know, suddenly I was like, you know what, I'm like, I'm changing the paradigm here, you know. I'm just like going to change a bunch of stuff and try like a new way of doing things. And I suddenly realized too, we had also been very close about, to some extent, how we made Obsolete. We'd helped a lot of people yeah. ourselves, you know, like following that, make their films. But you know, I just suddenly realized I want to take it to a different level. Like, you know, I want to be really transparent about what I'm doing and how I've done it and help other people. I just think like, this is one of the big things that I really realized, like I want to help other people make their films, you know, and give whatever knowledge I have truthfully to them. And I just feel there's so many lies in our industry and that really disempowers filmmakers because everything is like kind of in the shrouds of success because everyone always wants to make everything look more successful than it actually was, you know? And I thought, I just want to actually really, really be as honest as I can. We're planning to make a new film uh, this year in, in 2015. Uh, we're still working on the script right now. It's, uh, it's going to be micro budget. I think the budget's going to be smaller than Obsolidia, uh, where it's shooting out in the desert. It's yeah. a cast of like three. And, um, you know, my intention with that is 100% to do like, you know, just to follow through this vision, like what we're sharing and what we're teaching, like, and make it all transparent, you know, like every step of the way, here's how we're doing it, you know? Yeah. Um, go ahead. What were your hesitations with social media? You know, I just grew up in a different, like, you know, I, I feel like I grew up before it became really the thing. And so my initial usage of Facebook, for instance, so I'm not a digital native, you know, I'm definitely a digital immigrant. And like Facebook, for instance, it seemed like great for, you you know, connecting with my family initially, because my family will live overseas, but then it started to get bigger and it was like more people. And I, I felt like I'm a very private person, you know? And so that felt challenging to me. And I did, couldn't really see you know, it just seemed like, oh, this just seems like a big waste of time. I've got so much already things that I'm doing and I, I don't I don't really know what my voice is on these platforms either. And I don't really I just don't really get it. You know, it's just not my thing. And I've talked to a lot of filmmakers, you know, of sort of my age and uh, level of experience who feel the same way, who are still not engaging in it. Or still just like it's just not for me, you know. And I think obviously um, younger filmmakers who are in their 20s is totally their language and it's totally natural to them. And it's amazing. And, you know, I just realized for myself, though, and that's like that paradigm shift, like, you know, always you have to be willing to adapt. You have to be willing to change, you know, and what I've discovered curiously in the very short time that, for instance, I engaged in Twitter and he'll tell you, I'm like, I love this. I can't believe I didn't do it before. This is so much fun. And I've like, you know, met all these people and sort of, you know, like really, uh, I feel like connected with, um, you know, like my tribe, my, my people, I'm like, oh my God, they're here, you know? And it's, I, I absolutely love it. And I love 
the communication and the, I just, I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I can't believe I didn't, I didn't get into it earlier, you know? Um, so I just feel for me, the paradigm shift is really going, I want to find a way. And I think like, I think a lot of filmmakers are feeling this too. I want to find a way to just like be able to make the films I want to make and make enough money from them that I can keep making them, you know? And it's not like nobody's going to get rich or anything. Or maybe you will. Maybe you will you know, make one one day that will just knock it out of the park and you will get rich from it. But that's not the aim. The aim is just to like create a sustainable life as an artist, you know? And I feel like there's a lot of filmmakers wanting to do that right now. And I feel like if we support each other, you know, if we work together as a community, we can do it. Yeah. You know? And that's really like where we are right now. Like that's 2015 to me. I'm just like community, you know? And it's not just about... Uh, it's certainly not just about my films. It's really like helping other people to make their films. You know, I'm like working with a couple of people right now very closely on their projects. And I'm just like, I just, and I get so much out of it. I'm like, this is amazing, you know? And I, I'm, I think there's just masses of opportunities for filmmakers right now. But the way it will really work is if we support one another.